Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to VUX World, the Practical Voice Podcast. Today, myself and Dustin are joined by Sina Carhen. He is the co-founder and product manager at Vase. Vase are a, we're going to use the term pro bono, which means free, <laughs> consultancy agency voice first consultancy agency uh coming out of london imperial college london cena and his team over there are offering consultancy services literally for free in the voice space to a whole host of brands and we're going to be talking to cena today all about emotional intelligence and the difference between iq and eq and how voice assistants can become more emotionally intelligent what the value of being emotionally intelligent is in the voice space and we're going to be talking through his first date principles this is a list of design principles that you can use to make sure that you're crafting an emotionally uh, intelligent voice experience it is it's an absolutely epic episode you're going to absolutely love this one so detailed, so much knowledge in Cena's brain, and, and I knew that this one was going to be good, but I didn't realise it was going to be this good. It's absolutely immense. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Cena Carhen on VUX World. Well, yeah, we've, we've kind of met a few times, haven't we, Cena, over the last... Um last few months over the summer and stuff like that we um, have we have indeed and you've been kindly you kindly accepted to present and help us out at the imperial event which was very very good it was good it was very well received um it was a really good idea really good event that yeah we're going to do a few more and i do know that you're um going to be at the technova event as well rob mm. said he met with you yeah 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 i spoke to rob i'll yeah, be yeah. honest with you when i when i spoke with him i said why the hell are you having me as a host <laughs> i said i said you've got kane on this list and you've asked me to be the chair like are you serious <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know I'm, I'm sure it'll be absolutely wicked I'm yeah, it's it. not gonna be anything like you can do so uh, <laughs> yeah i'm gonna have to get some tips from you <laughs> <laughs> Well, Cena, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to VUX World. It's been a long time coming, but we finally made it happen. Indeed. Thank you for having me. Been looking forward to getting on a podcast I actually enjoy listening to. Indeed. And welcome again, Dustin. Yeah, thanks, Kane. This one's going to be a great one. It is. Cena, you are a very interesting character. Um, we were kind of <laughs> just speaking just there that, that we've uh, we've kind of met a few times over the summer and you are all over this voice thing, certainly in the UK and internationally. Um, tell us a little bit about about yourself and about what you're up to and, and tell us a little bit about what's going on with, with this. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. Um, interesting character is something definitely my wife would agree to. Um, my, my background is actually in biomedical sciences. So I graduated as a biomedical scientist um, and I wanted to go into the biotech world and I actually currently work full time within biotechnology. Uh, started in sales, uh, still involved in sales, but mainly now looking at uh, product development and seeing how we can utilize emerging technology uh, to improve our product offerings. And most of our products are used in the operating room. And we noticed that's an ideal use case actually for voice technology, because obviously the sterile setting of an operating room, having a voice user interface for surgeons to be able to interact with their medical devices seemed ideal. So dabbled into voice, got, really got introduced to voice through biotech and healthcare. 
then I was sponsored to do an MBA at Imperial College uh, last year. It's a two-year course, so I'm still going through that. And that's when voice really started to become commercialized. Uh, Alexa, Google Assistant started to make uh, make a lot of noise. And doing the MBA, seeing how brands have spent decades and billions on, uh, you know, uh, promoting themselves through visual elements, I started thinking, how how the hell is this going to turn out when they have to start thinking about auditory elements? And voice and its relationship with branding really, really started to entice me. So I looked at my MBA cohort and figured out that we've got, you know, 90 people here who are working within different industries in different roles. Uh, there's a bunch of brands out there who are seriously interested or don't know about voice. Uh, and we thought, why don't we be that bridge between, you know, voice technology and brands, bridge that ocean of unknown and consult brands on voice strategy all the way to voice experience. And, and we did that. That's when we set up base. So, so this is a, what would you describe it as a consultancy? I would say it's a, well, it's a pro bono consulting group. In other words, it's glamorous work experience. <laughs> we figure that, uh, you know, voice is going to be here in one shape or another. Uh, it may not be in the commercial commercialized form such as Google or Alexa, the same way that the computers that first came out aren't the ones that are in existence today. But the technology, the interface, the tool for which we will communicate, uh, for which we will use to communicate with technology, it's an inevitability. So we thought, look, we've got this MBA for two years. Uh, we've got the backing of Imperial College and all of the academic research that we can tap into for the next two years. Why don't we get as much experience as we can out there, uh, liaising with brands, uh, liaising with voice and emerging tech developers, uh, and see post-MBA if there's a space for us in the voice space or for us to bring voice into the companies we all currently work in full-time. And for those um, who are listening, uh, and this caught me off guard when I first come across this, pro bono, what you actually mean by pro bono is free is it literally free literally free uh, and, and as a jew it's very difficult to offer anything for free but yeah fully fully free so um as i said glamorous work experience is the you know the, the the blank term of it the blank way to define it we we meet up with brands we find out what their current digital strategy is what their whole brand identity is about what are, what are the touch points that they provide to consumers and then we'll go away and see if voice can tap into any of those uh, elements within the consumer journey um and yeah it's uh, it's it's been an experience that's the way to do it dustin give everything out for free <laughs> <laughs> for now yeah. for now yeah it's a good way to get started right uh, and like you said develop up that experience and so then once you develop up this experience what are you looking towards next so we don't do any developing. We focus, as I said, mainly on strategy and experience. So, uh, you know, we have a lot of um, uh, time ideating and, and mapping out how we want it to look. So that allows us to, if you like, offer our services for free because we don't actually do any of the developing. And what we're, what we're trying to gain from it is we're trying to tether the theoretical things we're learning in the MBA, uh, especially things such as behavioral science and consumer behavior and seeing how can voice um, be a future form uh, or future tool of communication with technology and with brands, keeping in mind all of these theoretical things we're learning in the MBA. Um, and to take that with us in any future career we might 
uh, tap into. And as I said, it's whether a career, the companies that we all currently work in, because we are all working full time in our own respective roles in our own respective industries, um, or something that we may want to do uh, outside of our current role and um, beyond uh, the MBA. So if Google, Amazon, and the other players are listening, uh, they know where we are. <laughs> and um, yeah, that's it. so we're going to get into some of the the stuff that you've that you've kind of spoke about in terms of some of the theoretical models that you put together. Because I know you've got a lot of interesting theories on on uh, on the design process and 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 the kind of the the term that I'm going to pinch your term biomimicry, which is an interesting term. We'll get into that in a little bit. But before that, are you at liberty to speak about any of the work that you've been doing with brands at Vase? I know that I'm sure some of it's probably NDA and stuff like that. But in terms of is is there any details you can share in terms of some of the stuff you've been working on? Um, I can state uh, some of the brands that we've um, either consulted or worked on with some projects. Um, some details, uh, I guess it depends. Um, but I think the main things we've worked on is, so as you know, VCCP agency uh, out in the UK, they're doing some amazing work. Uh, we helped them out on uh, an O2 project. Um, Ulife, which is a new life insurance company, um, they've, they're trying to make life insurance a little bit more interesting. They're the most digital life insurance company out there. So we've done work with them. Um, BBC, we've done some work with, which has been exciting, especially this methodology that we've come up with, which we'll discuss a little bit later. Uh, Touch Surgery, who are a VR and AR-based um, surgical training uh, digital experience, which, which we think will be the future of um, you know, healthcare training, um, and uh, something that we're working on now, which we're excited with, is uh, digital uh, mirrors, uh, which I can't mention the brand behind it, but I think it's going to be a real, real uh, element within future experiential retail shopping. So mm. um, it's it's a mixed bag, and uh, we're loving it. Mm. What kind of um, skill sets have you got at this then? Are you working kind of on the on the strategy side or the product strategy side in terms of trying to help these brands figure out what voice means for them and where they can start? Or are you more on the design side in terms of kind of like trying to map out and put together what an experience should look like? So we've got people for both. So currently there's 10 of us. Um, what we try to do is we were cognizant of the fact that there will be different industries uh, that voice has uh, applicability to. So we picked people, you know, from different industries. We've got people from healthcare. We've got people from uh, law. We've got people from retail, luxury, um, sports. And the reason we've done that is because these people understand their industry in and out. They understand the consumer journey that comes with the products that are sold within this industry. So they help with the strategy and mapping out the consumer journey and, uh, and figuring out what you know, the touch points are currently. And then we've got obviously Matt Miller, who is a, a fellow co-founder, um, who's our AI go-to guy. Uh, he works uh, within the AI space. Um, he's a linguist, uh, linguistic masters, uh, you know, expert as well. Uh, and then we've got a couple of people who are actually experienced within technology, uh, such as Matt Davies. Uh, and they're focused on seeing more of the techno technological capabilities of our crazy ideas that we try to come up with. Because uh, I guess we, we, we sense that having too much of a technological understanding behind these kinds of innovations subconsciously can limit imagination. So what we'll do is we try to be as much as, as needs driven as possible as opposed to tech driven. 
So we, we try to actually map out the total brand identity as well as, as I said, the consumer journey and see, is there actually a need that voice can you know, solve as opposed to we understand the technology and we're trying to chuck it down your throats. So we have, as I said, people who work on the strategy side, figuring out exactly uh, what the current state is. And then we'll tap into the guys who understand the technology um, and start designing an actual experience that we can then uh, pass on to the brand to either develop uh, or chuck out if they don't like. And, and so go into that a little bit. You were saying that knowing too much of the tech might be a hindrance at points. Can you give an example there? Yeah, so we, I mean, I've got a friend of mine who I mentioned, he's a software engineer. And we spend time, uh, you know, bouncing ideas off, of, uh, off to each other. Whenever we actually present a situation uh, or a, uh, a digital challenge that's being, that a company is facing, uh, I, I can see the, the constant brain analysis on, uh, is this feasible happening? And I've actually sensed this in the, the, the few years that I've been working within product management that when I interact with developers, um, a lot of it is based upon, a lot of their ideation is based upon or limited by what they know is uh, possible. Now, of course, you can then turn around and say, well, obviously, because if it's not possible, it's a waste of time. But actually, I guess it taps into some of the design thinking that we've been studying in the MBA, where you have to go through the empathy stage, you have to go through the discovering the the, the, you know, the, the behavioral stage when someone is interacting with uh, a device. So, you know, ethnographic research, seeing their behavior. And we kind of like limiting, not limiting, separating the creative side with the, if you like, the IQ side, uh, which is the developer side. So by doing that, the creative side can come up with as many crazy and wacky ideas as they possibly can. And then we can then tailor it into a technologically capable uh, entity by the inputs from developers and those who are uh, aware of the tech, um, as opposed to starting from a place where you are already limited. Uh, I think uh, the ideation process can actually be a little bit more uh, innovative and lead to more exciting solutions. Hmm, that's interesting that because um I suppose there's, there's different ways of, of skinning the proverbial cat, so to speak, isn't there? Because I remember when we when we spoke with um, Rain Agency, we kind of touched on this a little bit um, in terms of trying to figure out what the what the workflow looks like and what the process looks like of taking something from ideation through to production. Um, and what they were saying is that, that they had um, so Jason Herndon that was there, he's their CTO, and we had uh, Will Hall, their um, CCO, Chief Creative Officer, which is a unique and cool title. Um, and they were saying that they try and keep everything together um, in terms of the, the, the technical, the creative and the strategy throughout and the, the Jason's job was more to kind of um, try to push the limits of of what's possible, regardless of what he knows, it's pushing the limits of what's possible based on the kind of, I don't want to say blue sky because I hate that term, but in terms of design the ideal process and then push as hard as you can to get to that kind of process. Do, do you think there might be a, 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 a disconnect maybe if there, if there isn't technical people involved in the beginning or are you purely approaching it from we're just throwing ideas around and, and we'll kind of get people involved on the technical end once we think we've got something that's a, that's a valid use case? 
Um, I think the needs-driven aspect of it is something that we try to focus on, which means we, we would try to find the ideal use case uh, or the ideal scenario wherein, use, wherein voice can actually provide convenient utility. Um, so understanding everything about the user needs, understanding everything about the user context and something we're going to tap into, emotional states, um, we don't feel like uh, the technological aspect needs to um, uh, be, uh, you know, I wouldn't like to say intrude, but need to be relevant at that initial empathizing stage, if you like. Um, because again, we will not recommend voice if voice does not provide solution to that customer for that particular need. Uh, that's why one of the articles I've recently wrote, wrote on LinkedIn, which got, a, got some good and bad attention, if you like, uh, was uh, termed convenience first, uh, bursting the voice first bubble. Because I think one thing we've seen from the recent wave of voice technology is that, you know, shoving voice down as a solution and the be all and end all for every interaction with technology, for every single use case, for every single brand, it's just not feasible. We need to think about what is the most convenient input and output uh, tool, um, depending on the use case at that particular point in time. It may be gesture, it may be, it may be voice, it may be touch. Um, so it really depends. So voice is what we're focusing on. Uh, but needs driven is, I guess, the main thing that we we are. Tech driven is um, something that we we try not to try not to focus on too much. Mm. Um, so tell us a little bit about emotional intelligence. Then I know that we've kind of it's it's been mentioned a couple of times throughout the the kind of early parts of the the discussion in terms of well, how would you describe the current voice landscape in well actually first of all let, we'll describe the voice landscape in a second but first of all why is emotional intelligence important in the first place when thinking about creating a, a voice experience yeah i think this is uh i think this is key um and i think the best way to start with it is picturing a brain so you know think of a brain um you know they're responsible for IQ as well as EQ. So IQ would be intelligence quotient, EQ is emotional quotient. So the IQ side of the brain is basically the engineer in our brain, you know, has wonderful comprehension, math skills, and is essentially a treasure trove of reason and logic. But the other side of the brain, the EQ side, uh, this is the emotional part. Uh, so picture a therapist, you know, this is the therapist of our brain. Uh, and just like most therapists, it's got it's very high in emotional intelligence. Um, emotional intelligence itself, um, it's defined in you know the research as the ability to identify, evaluate, and then control the emotions of yourself and others. So you identify doing this action will bother me. You can evaluate it, and then you're able to control it next time and not do that action. So not only is that identify, evaluate and control your emotions, but actually it's the emotions of others, which is where within voice assistance, it, it comes in really, um, uh, you know, handy. And the whole purpose of emotional intelligence is you, you get this sense of empathy that builds relationships long term. And the way that we saw emotional intelligence being very relevant to voice technology and technology as a whole, but especially based on the voice landscape today, is that voice currently seems to be at a stage where the IQ is abundant. You know, we, our voice assistants can calculate the most complicated equation and can give us as much cold information as we want. Um, so, you know, this EQ side, if you like, and this IQ side is 
driven by Google search, all the data that's out there from decades of getting to know us through ambiguous asking of questions online, uh, or if it's Alexa through Wikipedia and Bing. Um, so these IQ based engines, if you like, provide us all the cold knowledge we need. But I think voice is very, very low in EQ, um, very low in emotional intelligence, basically. Um, and as a result, we're seeing our interactions with voice assistants currently quite robotic, quite you know, transactional and devoid of emotional intelligence. Uh, so we, we hold that you know, for voice to evolve, uh, it does need emotional intelligence. Um, it needs to understand users' emotions uh, and respond accordingly. Uh, and there's different ways of doing that, uh, whether it's through the tech or through the design. Uh, but yeah, voice definitely needs more EQ. And whose responsibility is that ultimately? Yeah, yeah. I think that comes into the two solutions that we can currently um, discover. So one solution is the technology itself. Um, so the people responsible for it are the people providing us with these voice assistants. We've seen incredible, incredible leaps in natural language processing and sentiment analysis. Um, but, you know, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Samsung, uh, they're working on this. And we know that Amazon have recently actually filed a patent uh, for the ability to sense emotional states by analyzing voice data. So what they're trying to do here is obviously trying to make Alexa a bit more human-like so it can interpret physical and emotional cues from the way that users are speaking. Um, and I think this is very much incumbent upon obviously the, the tech developers and uh, Google, I think at this stage, are probably the most contextually aware uh, voice assistant providers. Um, so that's the tech. So that's incumbent on technology providers, what they're doing with their voice assistants and constantly improving them by AI and AEI, artificial emotional intelligence. But then there's the design. Then there's looking at, okay, this is where we are with the technology. How can we make use of this tech, uh, technology uh, and design emotional intelligence within these interactions. So this is where I spend a lot of time looking at um, a field, a, a design approach, if you like, uh, called biomimicry. Um, and I've, I've termed something called biomimetic conversational design. And have you guys heard of biomimicry? Only from the conversation that we had uh, prior to, to this call. Uh, okay. And when you explain it, I think, Dustin, if you haven't heard the term, and everyone else who's listening, if you haven't heard the term, then I think you'll, you'll get what it is and you'll be able to identify areas where you've seen it before. Um, it's just, yeah, go on, see and explain. Yeah, so, so essentially with biomimicry, uh, it, it's affected your life way more than you actually think. Um, it's, it's an approach to solving design and technology challenges by looking at nature and mimicking it where applicable. So think of, I don't know, wings on a plane, right? When they're, when a company's trying to, so let's say Boeing are trying to optimize the wings on a plane, they would look at nature to see the characteristics, the characteristics of the wings on a bird, as obviously the wings of a bird have been optimized through millions of years of evolution, through trial and error, and the, the final product, if you like, or not the final, but the, the, the latest version of this wing that we have on a bird uh, is the most optimized version of a wing. So from that, Boeing can go away and mimic nature um, by imbuing those characteristics within their design process, designing their plane wings. So in essence, as I said, biomimicry is to solve 
design and technological challenges by mimicking bio, mimicking nature. Now, why I find this relevant to voice tech is, especially now that we've gone through this recent wave of voice first evangelism, let's have a look at the challenges that we're facing as an industry from this recent wave and how, you know, how can we solve these challenges by observing equivalent situations in nature and in society to help us solve them? And this is where biomimetic conversational design um, comes in and where our first date methodology uh, comes in. Uh, I was going to say, that this all sounds really interesting, but isn't this also how we get skeuomorphism and, and uh, leather stitching on, on certain apps that perhaps take too many cues from the physical world? Is there a space to di diverge from what we see in the physical world as well? Uh, yes, I would say there's two, two main points to that. Uh, first of all, I think skeuomorphism, the, the solution that uh, digital devices such as, a, let's say, an iPad screen or a mobile screen uh, were there to provide us aren't things that we were um, taking from nature, whereas voice technology is literally us taking something that we do regularly in uh, society and trying to digitalize it, if you like. So in that sense, if we're trying to, so I, I would say that the primary focus of voice technology is conversations. So surely if we're trying to create or mimic conversational capacity between humans, we need to take from um, human conversational maxims, if you like, um, as much as we can to try and you know, digitalize that experience and make voice technology more natural. However, the problem is you need to manage expectations because at the end of the day, as much as we're trying to improve uh, voice technology and conversational interfaces, uh, we don't want people using it to think it's the be all and end all and it's going to interact with us exactly the same way. We don't want them to expect that at this stage. So you have to manage those expectations and there are certain things within the design process that, that, that can allow for that. But actually, I think you have to look at the tablets where skeuomorphism was seen or, you know, the, the, the web uh, pages where we see it in the icons, etc. They're not mimicking something that already or it wasn't designed to mimic something that already exists in society. Whereas voice technology in its very essence was brought to us as a as, as a mimicking of something that we already, you know, interact with or utilize in society. And what What's an example of uh, something that you've worked on where you've taken this approach and used it to solve a voice problem? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess one thing we looked at was, I think the main thing uh, that we looked at was uh, retention rates. We noticed that, I think it was Recode who did a study um, early last year, 2017, sorry, early 2018 this year, where they noticed that only 3% of voice applications get a second um, a second uh, use. So only 3% of voice applications are used again after a week. Now, that's horrific. That's, that's really, really bad retention rates. So that's a challenge that we were faced with. And we thought, okay, how can we biomimetically solve this? So we looked at equivalence, an equivalent scenario in society. A first interaction, uh, you know, we'd look at it in society as, let's say, the first date. So, you know, you're on a first date. What what is it in a first date that is lacking, or you know, that, sorry, what is it in a first date that's lacking, 
where this person doesn't want to have a second date. Because in essence, what's happening with these voice applications is that they're not getting a second date. So we looked at things like lack of personality, lack of awareness, lack of recovering from an awkward situation. There are certain things that happen in a first date that make someone not want to go on a second date or make someone want to go on a second date. What are those principles and how can we bring them in those early interactions between a user and a voice application to get that second date? And we came up with six principles. Uh, they're the first date principles. And um, you know the way we've defined the first date principles are the early interactions between a user and a brand's voice application. And it's based on the theory that early interactions that are positive between uh, users and brands uh, are instrumental in increasing retention, purchase intention, and obviously brand attachment. Just, just think of yourself in society. If you've got good first impressions, um, if you understand uh, what's going to come of this friend that you have or of this situation that you've put yourself in, you're more likely to interact with it again. And these six principles, I mean, the first one is, uh, we'll, we'll go into it a bit more in depth, but the first one is generating awareness, then there's convenient utility, uh, there's personality, uh, personalization, multimodality, and recovery. And uh, I think it might be worth going through uh, each principle, what we actually mean by each of these principles, and some examples we've seen in the field that are honoring, if you like, uh, these principles. Mm. Yeah, we can do that. Yeah, before before we do, um, you, we, we, you, we, so you spoke about the technology and, and that the um, the big platforms, Google, Amazon, etc., are uh, in some way, shape, or form responsible for thinking about emotional intelligence and voice assistants. The the design side, it sounds as though, and we'll talk in a bit more depth about these principles in a moment. But to kind of round off the tech and the design, where in your mind does the does the tech responsibility and and um, capability stop, and where does the design start? So, what is the so, for example, you were talking about um, Amazon have, have filed a patent about decoding information. So is that decoding emotion, rather? So that sounds that sounds like, you know, I don't know, if, if you're shouting at Alexa, then it'll understand that it's shouting at you, presumably, and then, then respond to you in, in, in a different kind of way. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but does, does the technology, is it, is it incumbent on the technology to feed the designer or the developer signals in terms of the EQ? Or is it important? Is it up for the designer or developer to kind of just use these theories and try and apply this practice in general? So where does the tech stop and the design start on this? Yeah, no, that's a really, really important question. I think they're, 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 they're mutually um, relevant. Um, one of the ways that I, an example I can give you is you're a designer, let's say, you know, you, you, you want to um, provide um you want you want to book tickets. You want to book tickets on a train to go on holiday, or you want to book it if you want to go on a business trip. Now, these two different scenarios have different emotional states. The designer would want to design the conversation when you're booking it for business instead of booking it for a holiday. Um, they would want to design it in different ways, obviously, because if you're booking it for a business, you want it to be as frictionless as possible. You want to get through it and just book it. Maybe it's a trip that you take regularly. There's not much thinking behind it. It's very low involvement. Uh, 
But actually, if you're booking something for a holiday, if you're booking a train trip or a plane trip for a holiday, uh, that comes with an experiential side to the booking process where you're going to pay a little bit more attention. There's high involvement. But how do you know what that person is booking for? That's where the tech comes in. That's where the tech can provide some information with regards to uh, the emotional state of the user, uh, the device that they're using. So where are they? Are they using it you know, at the station or are they using it at home? Uh, do we know from the history of their um, uh, you know, purchases that they regularly book for trains? For, sorry, they reg- regularly book for work. Uh, or do we know from their calendar that they are booking something that is relevant to a meeting that they've got? So you, the designers need the, the information from the technology providers to be able to design conversations accordingly. So I really think it's a, it's a mutual relationship and, and, and the emotional intelligence needs to be uh, you know, imbued by both technological providers as well as designers and developers. How does this work in with what you mentioned earlier in terms of knowing too much of the tech being a hindrance? Because uh, what it sounds like you're saying now is that without knowing really what the technology is capable of, the designers won't be able to fully design the the experience. Am I understanding that correctly? Yes. Yes. Great question. So it depends on the stage you're at. So I guess what I'm trying to say is when you're trying to find the right uh, point in the consumer journey for voice to provide a solution, you don't necessarily need to know the ins and outs and technological capabilities of voice. You need to just see what are the needs of the users at each stage of the consumer journey and is voice um, something that can tap into one of these needs. But once you've agreed and decided that yes, voice, the interaction, the frictionless um, you know, uh, nature of it is ideal for this use case instead of having to type something, so once you've almost been sold on the voice, then you start thinking about the technological capabilities uh, as I guess the uh, CCO of uh, Rain Will had uh, mentioned to you guys earlier um, with regards to that. So I guess when you're trying to find if voice is a solution, I don't think it's necessary uh, to understand all of the capabilities. Uh, I think the, the interactive um, experience of voice is what you need to understand as opposed to all of the capabilities. Once you're sold on the solution, if you like, to that need being voice, then when you're starting to design the conversations and the whole UX side of things, you obviously need to know the capabilities. And this is where I think technological providers long-term need to provide those analytical tools and analytical information about you know, contextual awareness, emotional states, et cetera, et cetera, for the designers to be able to design accordingly. But that's only after you've been convinced that voice is indeed the solution to that need. Mm. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that, that was well put. <laughs> um, so let's 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 get into these these principles then. So um, we've kind of spoke a bit about the the um, the reliance on technology providers to be able to assist uh, designers and developers in terms of creating an experience that is rich in EQ. And then on the other side, we've got things that designers can do to to kind of create an experience that is more emotionally sensitive, should we say? Um, and then we started touching on the first date principles, and you started talking about a few of these principles. Let's let's run through those principles then in terms of how people can go about creating an emotionally uh, intelligent experience. So the first one you said generate an awareness. Is that right? 
Indeed. So again, we always try to take it biomimetically and we, we've taken it into a first date. So the, the way that I translate generates awareness within a date situation is, did she make you aware of who she is and what she's about? I think one of the most frustrating things, I don't know about you guys, if you've been on dates and you, you know, you just know that you have so much to offer this relationship. But unfortunately, if the first date doesn't go well and you don't see the person again, it's a missed opportunity. So, but you've got to find that right balance between saying too much about what you're capable of to not bore them to death and take it too seriously. But at the same time, you don't want to not generate awareness about who you are and what you're doing. And the way that I translate that in a voice experience is, you know, does the voice app clearly generate awareness of the brand and or the utility that the voice experience will provide? So when you're having those early interactions with a voice application, do you know what the hell you can do with it? Um, I think one of the ways that I, I personally like that it, uh, I've seen Valara, they, they provide uh, voice experiences within hotel chains. They've got a little brochure, if you like, or just one little one side of paper where next to the voice assistant in the hotel, it will say what it's able to do. Now, you may not want to do that with a, you know, a, a brochure. You might think that's adding layers of friction. So you can come up with more creative ways of generating awareness. But this idea that you, you, you need the voice application to tell you what it's capable of, I think is, I think is a key first principle. Mm-hmm. And is that, so the, 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 those examples there are kind of offline ways of, of um, trying to get people to understand what it's capable of in terms of, because we, we touched on this with, uh, with Paul Jackson of the BBC in terms of that fine line between kind of reading through a menu as soon as somebody launches a skill or an action versus trying to give them a, a taste and trying to encourage them to explore. So is that kind of, is that kind of one of the things that you're talking about in terms of when someone first gets also as, as well as promoting it outside of that, when someone first enters a voice experience, framing that conversation and, and helping them understand what it is that they can do within that experience. Indeed. Indeed. So again, like a first date, you've actually, ha- you have that interaction. So if you want to talk about how do you generate awareness and get over the discoverability that we have in uh, discoverability issues we have in the voice industry, that's uh, I guess that's a, uh, the step before, and you know, there are solutions for that that we've, we've discussed and um, written about online. But this is, you're, you're having your first interaction or your early interactions with this voice application. How can you design these early interactions in a way where the user knows what they're getting from it? And I think an online example, if you like, to, to differentiate between offline and online, Yes Sire, which is a very, very popular game on Alexa, I'm sure you guys have played. It explains from the start of the experience, um, you know, your role, what's the scene, uh, and, and, and what are the rules of the game? And it's, it's, almost, it's almost putting you in this virtual world as this, you know, king of a kingdom, um, preparing you for, for what's to come. And I think that's a, that's a good way of doing it. Uh, so the first principle uh, we think is, yeah, make sure you generate the awareness of what it is that your application will be providing the user. Hmm. Wasn't that one? Of, was that one of Florian Holland's games, Dustin? Or was that just one he was a fan of? Yes, sir. Yeah, yes, sir. Yeah. No, no, it wasn't one of Florian's games. Was it? I think he was Bloody talking good about game. It. Highly recommend it. Is it? Yeah, I'll have yeah. to try that out. Well, maybe I'll put the link. In the <laughs> I think it's like the third us. most popular app, I think, or something. Yeah, it's like it's definitely up there for the games. Oh right, okay. I'll have to try that yeah. out. Yeah, incredibly well put together. Uh, especially when you start thinking about. Uh, how they do all the the voices, the text-to-speech in there, it's uh, top-notch. 
Absolutely. Wicked. Absolutely. Well, there you go. If you want an example of generating awareness, the first date principle, then go and check out Yesaya. <laughs> so, so what about? I think there's, there's a fine line there, though, isn't there? And I'll have to check out Yesaya to. Um, in fact, hang on, Alexa. Alexa, open Yesaya. Yesaya contains mature content that Ooh. may not be suitable for all ages. Ooh. Would you like to continue? Sounds risky. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> Welcome to Yes, Sire. Sire, the king has appointed you to be a lord of these lands. I will come to you with a series of difficult choices. Answer my questions with a simple yes or no and try to maintain balance in the kingdom. My liege, it's been some time since the people were given a reminder of your superiority. Shall we construct a golden statue in your honor? <laughs> no. <laughs> Alexa, your mod quit. Okay, that's cool. So that gives a good example yeah. of, of how to. Uh... It sets the scene, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. And, so this um... is by, this is done by Volley, uh, ah. who done a number of number of great uh, voice voice games and is really one of the leaders in uh, monetization as well. So not just really building those great experiences, but also actually making money on it. Nice. Wicked. That's a good example. Okay, then, uh, principle number two. So, principle number two is convenient utility. Very, very important to understand that I use two terms. Convenient utility. Not convenience and not utility. And I guess the way we translate this is, did he seem like the type to provide the relationship genuine utility? Or is he a bit of a gimmick? And the way that we translate this in the voice experience is that the voice app has features that provide a clear utility that addresses a consumer need and with lower levels of friction than other touch points. That's why I call it convenient utility because let me give you an example. Tide, which is a detergent app, well, it's a detergent company out in America. Uh, the guys at Rain Agency who we worked with, um, they developed the Tide detergent app and that app provides utility, which is stain removal tips in a conversational format, but it's actually more convenient than stain removal tips in other formats. Because if you think about it, when you're removing stains, you don't necessarily want to read something off of a screen. You want to be able to, as and when you're trying to remove the stain, have this interactive um, you know, process in removing the stain. So it's convenient utility. And I think we push the notion of make use cases that provide genuine utility a lot in the voice space. But actually, that's where the voice first bubble tends to break. It tends, tends to burst because it needs to be convenient utility. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's definitely something we see as being worthy of being a second principle in the first state methodology. Mm. So, so the difference between providing convenient utility, correct me if I'm wrong, and, and just general kind of utility is that if it's, if it's general utility, then it still might be a bit of a clunky or horrible experience, Indeed. but it gets something Indeed. done. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. Convenient utility, though, is voice is the best way of getting this information. So if you like, utility, the, the utility or the use case at its highest potential. You could get it through a blog post, you know, stain removal tips, there's plenty of them. You could get it on your mobile, you can get it on many, many different ways. But when it comes to digital experiences, giving you those stain removal tips, voice is the most um, convenient format for it. Hmm. 
It's an interesting use case, and I'd wonder whether either in the Tide skill or other skills similar to it, it's almost as if it's been designed around being able to remove the stain while you're actually involved in the experience rather than having to kind of like, you know, pick your phone up and go back to the article and then you turn away and you pick a, you pick your top up and you try and remove a bit of the stain and then oh, what do I do exactly. next and you pick your phone back up again. I wonder how, how that's transpiring in, in reality and whether, because it's the same with recipes, isn't it, in terms of being able to cook along with something. It's like you are having the experience while you're in the process of doing something and it's it's kind of embodied within the action or, or the thing that you're doing rather than having to stop what you're doing and go and do something else and then pick up the phone and then go back to what you're doing again. It's an interesting way of framing it that I wonder whether that's how often that is actually happening versus how many people are kind of listening to it and then going away later and doing something about it. That's a really good point and it's uh, I think it's one of the benefits of the Google Home Hub currently with regards to their uh, you know recipe actions because that will stop at each stage because it's cognizant of the fact that it's if it's going to provide you this utility of giving you recipes it needs to be in the most convenient manner and it is so absolutely uh, I think it'll be really interesting for further research to actually look at how are people interacting with their voice experiences is it something that they have to keep going back and forth uh, to because they are trying to do something at the same time almost multitasking or is it something you can do simultaneously with the you know solution to the challenge that you have um, look if the UX world are willing to fund it we'll, we'll do it <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, maybe, yeah maybe we'll have to revisit that in year. <laughs> but no I think I think it's a it's an interesting concept of having voice be part of a different experience and, and embodied within that experience as opposed to being an appendage which a mobile phone is having it as part of whatever you're doing and having it just there kind of like talking you through something in the experience is quite an interesting concept um so okay then so so principle number three what, what's principle number three principle number three is personality i guess you know one of the main elements of emotional intelligence is personality so in the date context, uh, did she have a distinctive character or was she as vanilla as the others you've dated? Um, <laughs> translating that in a voice application, um, you know, the voice app has a voice, a character, a mascot, a persona that differentiates it from others. So I think this is something that's pretty well known in the voice industry. Um, I think it was James Giangola of uh, uh, Google who stated that there's no such thing as a voice user interface without personality. It's just, you know, you may not have created one, but people will deem it as being something if you don't actually actively um, develop one uh, for the application. So personality is is key. And there are examples of that you see. I think that the Just Eat voice application, uh, you know, the Takeaway Kings, if you like, they've done this by, you know, pretty basic pretty basic uh, elements. Uh, they've got humorous responses. So when you've ordered food, it will say, you know, you've ordered like a bulse. And it will actually say boss in mm. that American way, boss. And it will say okie dokie buddy. And little elements, elements like that, which are you know, imbuing personality in the interaction, as opposed to a you know, monotonous you know, monologue machine that so many voice assistants uh, tend to be now and again. Um, it goes a long way in humanizing the interaction between uh, the brand, which is just eat in that case, and the user. Mm. The, uh, the Domino's one's a good example of that as well. It, it kind of like weaves in like little pizza puns and stuff like that. Like I'm, I'm jalapeno happy or something like that. It kind of like <laughs> exactly. weaves in a lot of that stuff. It's quite interesting. That's actually probably a better example. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. I was going to say, I think often when people use the word personality, they mean out there, funny, 
uh, perhaps a little perhaps a little loud. But as you mentioned, uh, you have a personality whether you mean to or not. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about devising a personality more than just hey, let's make this a clever uh, a clever assistant? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the the way you got to do it is to think about the person interacting with it. So personality is very much uh, something that should be sensitive to the emotional state of the person subject to that personality. Personality is essentially the persona. So it is a representation of us. It is not necessarily us. But you know how it is when people are too loud, when you are actually feeling quite calm. And you know how it is when people or your friend is very calm, when you're in actually a very extrovert mood. So it's all about tapping into what is the emotional state of the person for this use case. Again, if you're a business um, man or woman looking to book tickets uh, for a flight, you aren't looking for jokes and humor. You're looking for somebody who's you know, pretty serious, going to get the job done for you in a frictionless and professional manner. But if you're booking it for an experiential thing, such as a holiday, that's something where you can you know, award a little bit more um, and again, as you said, not a bit more personality because personality could be, uh, you know, many, many different forms, but a bit more humor if you like into it. So tailor the personality to the use case. And again, you could do that biomimetically. Go back to how someone would sell a ticket for a plane for a business trip versus a holiday and, you know, mimic that personality of the com- customer service assistant in a digital experience. And I think I think it was Clifford Mass. Um, Who's, um, who's written a fantastic book on the human-computer interaction that specifically focuses on voice. And he sees that the personality for, you shouldn't necessarily create a voice experience that only has one personality. The personality of that voice experience should change according to what that voice experience is providing you in that um, uh, you know, situation. So if it's a customer service situation, the personality should be different. If it's managing a complaint, the voice, the, the personality should be different. If it's giving you bad news, the whole personality should be different. So again, personality, as you said, is, is it's a spectrum. It's not necessarily loud and bubbly. It could be anything, but you need to be sensitive to what is the use case, what is the objective of this particular interaction within this voice application, and what are the personality? What is the personality that can best achieve uh, an emotionally intelligent uh, experience? Mm. Is it the media equation, how people treat? Media equation, that's, that's the, I think that was his first book. He okay. had a second one, which in my opinion is the voice Bible. Wired for speech. Wired for speech, that's the one. Uh. It is, uh, it, it's my voice Bible anyway. <laughs> and he does, um, he's, yeah, he spent, I think it was a decade just researching our interactions with um, voice interfaces. And it was all done at Stanford. Um, uh, and it, it's incredible. It's incredible. He taps into uh, a lot of the things to do with, you know, male personas, female personas, uh, different different personalities for different use cases. And um, one thing that we realized at VACE is that so much of the academic research into voice is actually 10, 15 years old. So it may be a good time to start refreshing that. So that's personality. That's, that's principle number number three. Cool. And I'll put that link to the book in the uh, in the show notes, boys and girls, if you want to go and check that one out. Um, cool. So 
yeah, I think the personality side of things is, is absolutely uh, really, really important. There's a really good video as well I'll try and dig out of Wally Brill of Google, uh, and he's doing a, a kind of talk at one of the Google I.O. events, I think it was, at the, at the start of the summer. And he talks through the process of, kind of similar to what you were saying there, but he, he uses it as an airline uh, stewardess almost. So you book an airline ticket, and he uses an example of a butler. So one, one is like a butler kind of... Um, persona very straight very kind of uh, you know straight talking very serious and then one is like a family holiday thing which is a bit more as you were saying like a bit more laid back a little bit more friendly kind of thing um, exactly so what, where where do you draw the line between creating emotional intelligence and creating a personality is is the emotional intelligence a subset of creating a personality or is a personality a subset of creating emotional intelligence that's a good question i would say personality comes as a result of your emotional intelligence because again, if, if emotional intelligence is defined as the, the ability to identify, value, evaluate and control your emotions and you know, another person's emotions, um, using that toolkit, if you like, of emotional intelligence, you're able to tailor your personality in that moment in time according to that interaction. So um, you know, emotional intelligence makes up your personality. Mm. Cool. What about what we're doing now? Number four, principle number four. Principle number four is personalization. So again, back to the first date. Was he really interested in you and wanted to get to know you, or did he want a one night stand? <laughs> and the way that we translate this in a voice application is the voice application has features that are specific to the user, specific to the persona of the user, the context of the user, and importantly, the emotional state at each stage of the journey. Um, you know, this, this kind of taps into so many different things because we're living in an era of personalization. And there's so many debates around this era of personalization, philosophical and ethical debates. Uh, because, you know, the more we person, the more our digital interactions are personalized, the more we are building an echo chamber, the more we are not being exposed to things that we didn't know we were exposed to because these algorithmic machines are giving us what we have said we wanted. So that shuts down worlds of experience and worlds of novelty that we would otherwise not have been exposed to. But this personalization element is primal. It's something that I guess taps into all of our tribal drives that we have. Um, we build empathy and relationships with, with those who are able to personalize their interactions accordingly. So I think this is a key element in, in an early interaction to, to let the user know that you know, there is personalization uh, within this relationship and do you mean personalization as in um for example having a different greeting the second time someone uses a skill or an action or do you mean personalization as in really predicting what people are likely to want to engage with based on either previous behavior or, or something like that i guess the way that i define personalization in this context is the ikea effect you know the reason why you love the table that you're working on relative to one that you would have purchased is because you built it. So there's an element of personalization to the entity that you're using that attaches you to it more so than if you had just purchased it outright and someone else had built it. So it, again, it taps into primal drives. Uh, we like things that, that are tailored according to our needs and wants. So if you're looking at um, you know, uh, what I term the, it's the Benjamin Button effect. So historically, products 
have decreased in value the more that you use them. Uh, obviously, there are exceptions such as uh, certain watches and antiques, etc. But generally, products, tangible products especially, uh, they decrease in value. But the Benjamin Button effect is something that I think all voice experiences need in that it increases in value every time you use it due to this personalization, due to it gleaning this sort of observational data from the user and iteratively improving itself. Um, I think I think that's that's how I would you know define personalization in this context. Mm. It's interesting. That might explain a little bit about why interactive stories have taken off so much. Not that they are you know purely personalized as in as in it's just for you but it's the ability to be able to personalize the experience yourself based on what you fancy doing at that time do you know what i mean exactly exactly there's this book actually there's a book company book manufacturing company book publisher if you like they've um they, they you can create a book online for your kid where it will have the name on it where it can even 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 build a story into it that's relevant to something that your child can relate to because uh, obviously most of the books uh, out there weren't tailored specifically for your child. They, they, there's, there's levels of personalization to them. But um, I think, we're, we're, as I said, we're, we're moving towards this, this, this future of personalization because, again, it taps into primal drives that, that, that won't go away and, frankly, shouldn't go away. Mm. Yeah, there is certainly books out there that try and and, and personalize. So I recently bought for uh, Junior the uh, A to Z of Rappers it's eight, eight, no. I've got that. Have you? I've got Have that. that is a, I'm so happy to find out someone else yeah. has this book. A, a, B to Jay-Z, I think it's called. Exactly, exactly. And, and to, it's fantastic. It is. It's, well, to my um, disappointment, uh, A, when you open it up, the first page, talk about personalization, the first page, A, is Acon. I and I wasn't happy about that whatsoever. So I scribbled I it well, all well. out and I've changed it to <laughs> A, Tribe Called Quest. <laughs> Brilliant. I was more depressed about the fact that they put Dr. Dre instead of Drake. Really? For D. Oh, yeah, I mean, come on, you've got to get with the time. Yeah, but Dr. Drake Dr. is a bit more relevant these Dr. days. Dr. Dre is historic, Drake. though, isn't he? You know what I mean? He's, he, <laughs> Drake wouldn't exist if it wasn't for Dr. Dre. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Classic. So, uh, principle number five, then. What's principle number five? Um, principle number five multimodal. So, again, back to the first date. Was he only enjoyable to be around when you're at a bar or can his charm adapt to different settings? You know, take him home and you know, does, does he interact as well or does he behave as well in front of your parents as he does when you're in a bar? And the translation of that in, in, in voice terms, if you like, is that the voice application has features that can you know, work in concert with visual and touch cues such as Echo Show, Google Home Hub. Or it can be another touch point within a multimodal experience. So, you know, you can send notifications and information directly to mobile, email, TV. So I think this multimodal element is, I think it's key. And it goes back to what I was talking about, about convenience first, as opposed to voice first. Um, you know, our, con our conversations in human life, they're not reserved, you know, solely to voice. Sometimes we are in a private setting and we want to go into text mode. Sometimes, you know, we want to change the page on an echo show and we don't want to say Alexa turn right we want to just slide it it's more intuitive and convenient to just slide so I think it's really important for voice applications to tap into this multimodality element and make sure that the conversation is truly conversational in that it flows across different um, you know gestural uh, and physical cues 
Uh, I think the best example of this, I would say Google Assistant. I really do think Google Assistant in the way that, you know, it continues a conversation on your phone. If you ask it for directions from, you know, the Google Home, it will say, I've sent you directions to your phone. And then you visually have that information in front of you. There are obviously skills and actions out there that uh, do similar things, whereby it will say, I've sent something to your phone, have a look at it. Uh, but I think the, the, the most, the most you know, frictionless experience I've had with regards to multimodality uh, is the Google Assistant. Mm. I think I'd definitely agree with that. And I'll, I'll give you another example. Um, the other day, what I've taken to doing now whenever I'm feeding Junior in the front room on a night is uh, I'll just have YouTube on the telly. So I'll, I was watching, um, I think it was a Joe Rogan podcast. and I, Good choice. Yeah, Good yeah, choice. Yeah, I like you yeah, more. Yeah, it's immense. It's immense. Um, so I can't remember specifically which one it was, but I was, watching it, I was watching it and I'd been watching it for about 40 minutes or something while he was having a bottle and stuff. And then, I went into the uh, the front room, maybe last night anyway, went into the uh, dining room and said, I just tried it, I just, I've only just got the uh, the Google Home hub, um, it, was a, it was a gift, uh, so thank you very much for, for, you know who you are, who gives it. Um, I don't know if they want to publicise that or not, so I don't want to kind of mention it, but um, uh, yeah, so, so I was testing it out and I was trying it and stuff, and um, I, I said, hey Google, continue playing the Joe Rogan podcast on YouTube and I shit you not it continued on the home hub from where I'd left off on the telly there you go. It, Multimodality at its finest. It, it was so I wasn't expecting that, you know what I mean? But it but it did exactly that. It continued from one environment to the other environment and just continued from where it left off. It was unbelievable. And you know what? That 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 scenario that you just described as well taps into the fourth element of personalization. Mm. Because what it's doing is it's 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 provided the multimodal experience according to something personalized, which is something that, you know, you, you were watching on one platform and which was then able to be transferred to another one. Mm. Um, so no, absolutely. That's a good, that's a great point. Wicked. So last principle, sixth and final principle. I know, I know it's kind of getting on. I know we've overrun a little bit, but the last principle, I'm sure we've got time for the last principle. What, what's the last yes. one? Yes. Yeah. So the last principle is something that is close to my heart and that's recovery. So again, in a, in a first day situation, uh, did she know how to recover from a bad joke or awkward situation? Um, taking this back to voice applications, uh, you know, when the conversation hits an error, which, you know, in developer term we call unhappy paths, you shouldn't let an awkward silence take control. You know, these awkward silences that happen in first dates can be, you know, critical. Uh, I think what should happen instead is that the voice experience should actually reroute to a happier path. And what I mean when I say happier path is that if you think of you know, yourself and your relationships with friends or anybody that you know, there are ultimately times where you get into some difficult situations with them. But if you recover from those situations, and if you overcome that negative period, you can actually be stronger and you can end up in a happier path than you would have done if you didn't get through any mud or difficult situation with them in the first place. So think of the people that you know who you have never had any problems with. There's never been any you know, negative, uh, unhappy path, if you like. Let's say there's seven out of 10 on a friendship scale. But there are friends of yours who you've been really through the shits with in the past. And they may be a nine out of 10. And that's because you've overcome a certain situation with them and you have rerouted to a happier path. And I think this is key, especially when we're talking about emotional intelligence, especially when we're talking about relationship building and empathy. Because if the design of your application is sensitive to making the best 
situation out of a negative situation and not just leaving an awkward silence, you can tap into that, um, you know, uh, empathy that you otherwise wouldn't if there was just a pure and frictionless happy path. So again, it goes back to the old adage of there's a silver lining to every cloud or however way you say it. Yeah, there's a, there's a really good example that, that we used when we spoke to uh, Paul Jackson of the BBC. Essentially, it's if they don't understand what a kid has said when they're trying to choose whether or not they want to play with a certain character in a game or whether they want an interactive story or a game or whatever, they give them two chances. If they don't understand them on the second time, they'll say something like, do you want to pick another game? So this is kind of error recovery. Do you want to pick another game or would you like a surprise? And Paul Jackson's uh, Paul Jackson was saying essentially that every kid, 10 times out of 10, wants to go for a surprise. And it doesn't matter what <laughs> they get, they are absolutely over the moon with it. So it's an example of taking an error situation, something that could go wrong, and turning it into something far better than it ever could have been because it's now just a random gift. It's like a present, do you know what I mean? I love that. It, again, it taps into the primal need for anticipative situations. We love anticipation and surprises are the perfect uh, example of that. So I love that example. And I actually didn't know that example. Yeah. I think that's the one I'm going to start using from now and I'll quote you for it. Quote Paul Jackson. That's, that's the guy yeah, who exactly, it. I will do. <laughs> but again, it, it, as I said, when I said about the first date, did she know how to recover from a bad joke or awkward situation? I've had scenarios where you, you, know, you might drop a drink and if you turn that into a humorous or you know a, a beneficial outcome you can end up breaking the ice and actually building uh, an empathetic uh, scenario that you otherwise wouldn't have done if you hadn't dropped that drink so i think recovery is 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 a very important and uh, emotionally intelligent principle of the first date methodology Fantastic. Well, I love the sound of that. So just to recap, we've got generating awareness, helping people understand what the, the skill is about or what the, what the experience is about. Convenient utility, which is different to general utility because it's, it's utility whilst at the same time being the optimum experience and optimum use of voice. Uh, personality and using the right personality for the right situation. I loved what you were saying around that even one experience or one action or one skill could potentially have a numerous different personalities depending on what the user is actually doing. Uh, I love that example. Uh, Personalisation, going beyond actually recommending stuff based on previous behaviour, but actually giving people uh, an opportunity to either craft their own experience or have things in the kind of within their control that they can have an input into, which which kind of makes something an entirely different experience than it would have otherwise been. Multimodal, which I think is going to be increasingly important, certainly with the likes of the Google Home and, and the, the Echo Show and then mobile voice experiences and stuff like that. So adapting to different situations and then recovery, getting people onto a happier path rather than rather than letting them down. I think that's sound, sound advice, Cena. Thank you very much. And, uh, you know, I'd be keen to speak with as many brands as possible, see what their voice experience is currently, um, you know, output with regards to these first day principles. And I'm actually working on a review website, uh, a voice experience review website that will review voice experiences based on these six criteria. So um, stay tuned for that. That sounds good. And where can people reach out to you then if they do want to get in touch or where can people kind of follow the work that you're doing? So uh, LinkedIn, Sina Kahin is something is a, is a place where I would recommend. But I'm actually on Instagram recently. Uh, I've had a few of my friends saying, come on, man, you've got, you got to jump on the Instagram bandwagon. <laughs> but I promise I've got no pictures of family or friends. It's, it's basically me just uh, 
uh, regurgitating ideas that I found from across the web with regards to emotional intelligence, technology, and design. So at Sinakahen, S-I-N-A-K-A-H-E-N, is where you'll find me on Instagram. Fantastic. Sina, this has been absolutely immense. I knew this would be an epic conversation. I knew that, but it has gone even further over and above what I thought it would be in the first place. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been really, really interesting. Thank you for having me, and I hope you continue the great work you're doing for the industry. Thank you so much. That was Sina Carhen of Vase. Sina, thank you so much for joining us. That was such an interesting conversation. I think that the the line between the technology and the design in this area of, of emotional intelligence is an acute one and uh, there certainly is tons of opportunities there out there for, for brands and designers and developers to create more compelling user experiences through the use of emotional intelligence the principles the first eight principles I love that analogy um, and I think we were kind of discussing after the project that the the first date principle works so well because it's in the whole concept of a first date is it is a really highly emotional state it's where emotional intelligence is required at its utmost uh, so to, to kind of package up some principles to, to really kind of nail emotional intelligence from a design perspective within that metaphor within that analogy is, is a really really good one uh, if you didn't hear Dustin towards the end of that podcast he had to duck out a little bit early he had another call I think the conversation was just flowing and uh, we ran over a little bit. <laughs> so apologies for losing Dustin uh, towards the end there. But it was an immense conversation. I hope you took as much value out of that as I have. Uh, and I'm sure Dustin did. Uh, Cena, amazing, absolutely amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and thank you all for listening. Until next time, see you later. Yeah.